How do companies create a culture and core values that employees actually live out? The team at The Receptionist, a bootstrapped Denver-based software company, sets out to answer that very question. Welcome to The Fabric Podcast. Here's your host, Michael Ashford. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Joan Fallon, an entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of the biopharmaceutical company CureMark, which focuses on developing novel therapies for diseases with limited treatment options like autism. Dr. Fallon and I discuss her recently published book, Goodbye Status Quo, Reimagining the Landscape of Innovation, where she introduces us to the idea that we are in what she calls a scene time in the status quo and how we might adjust to the changes we face. Dr. Fallon also offers up one of my favorite answers to my question about which of our receptionist core values resonates with her the most, so be sure to listen to the end. Now, here's Dr. Joan Fallon. In reading your book, uh, Goodbye Status Quo, Reimagining the Landscape of Innovation, I came upon something that you said that I want to dig into right here off the bat, which is, and I'm going to read this to you, right now, I believe we are in a quote unquote seam time, S-E-A-M, seam time in the status quo. I've got to ask, Dr. Joan, what do you mean by seam time? Um... So I think that people think of life um, as sort of a continuum um, and a a linear line that uh, just keeps continuing on and on. I believe that really there are seams, openings in in the status quo, that that linearity that we live every day, where innovation comes up out of. Um, I think I liken it in the book to a little like a fault line for an earthquake where the energy comes up out of the out of the earth and creates a new topography and so i believe that uh there's always those seams where we get innovation but because of the pandemic they're much larger and more things will come up out of those seams in in the context of a company or a business going through a seam time what has to happen to be able to navigate that, maybe let's use a, another sewing analogy to stitch those seams together rather than have them rendered and ripped apart. What does a company, what does a leader have to do in those situations? Well, sometimes the innovation or the things that come up out of the seams are related to what you're doing um, and yet maybe something that you never thought of before. Like, for example, there's lots of medical testing companies. Many of them pivoted to doing COVID testing at home, like Everlywell. And so while they had never dreamt of that opportunity, here it was in front of us, and they needed to pivot. And the ones who could pivot had opportunity. Those who were originally holding on to their original premise or the work that they were doing at the moment lost out. So I believe that you need to be able to have some imagination and also to be able to pivot. What about you? Uh, what about you and the the business that you run? And, and you wrote a book during this time as well that we're obviously talking about. What was your goal, I guess, in working and navigating through this same time? What did that look like for you? So I, it's interesting in uh, February and very early March of 2020, I was in Qatar. And I went there on a, at the request of the Qatari ambassador to look at autism facilities in, in Qatar. And while I was there, the virus was there. So 
we were able to actually, uh, I was able to see firsthand having to wear masks and doing those different things. It was just starting to emerge there. And so um, when I came back uh, to the U.S., I said to my team, okay, we should do two things. We have to make sure the children on our clinical trial have the drug that they need for the next six or seven months. Because I don't know whether there's going to be closures of our of our storage uh, you know, companies or our distribution companies. And I want you to pay uh, our employees for three months ahead of time. Because I lived through 9-11 here when the Bank of New York had no computer system. And I don't think we really understood what was coming. So I try to anticipate the coming onslaught of change. And uh, the book actually was a compilation of things I had been writing all the years before. Uh, things that happened, thoughts I had. And when I saw people so resistant to change and struggling with it, especially in the early part of the pandemic, I said, you know, I need to get this out there. Hmm. And so I spent my free time doing that rather than going to SoulCycle or something uh, <laughs> that I would normally do, which I didn't do during the pandemic. So, yeah, so many of us uh, realized that uh, you got to figure out ways to work, for, work out from home, right? Right, exactly. Um, so you used a phrase there that you were trying to anticipate. Uh, you were trying to anticipate what could be coming based on the information that we know. But you certainly, Dr. Joan, know, and, and as we all do now looking back, it was such a time of uncertainty for all of us. We'd never lived through anything like this. And you you write in the book that pushing past the status quo and, and finding the right route to go down and finding the right um, direction to change or pivot to requires hanging out in that uncertainty. And, and I'm curious why you believe that is. Why, when so many of us feel the need to move, why do you advocate for hanging out in, in uncertainty? Well, I think that people don't like uncertainty. No, so they we don't. tend to want to wiggle <laughs> away from it, right? They, they move away from that uncertainty. But sometimes if you move too quickly, the uncertainty shows itself a little differently later on. So if something is in the middle of a change, it's in the middle of a change. You don't know what, where that's going. So if you act too soon, just because you're uncomfortable, that could be a, a poor outcome. So you need to stay in the uncertainty, get as much information as you can about how you need to change if you need to change, and then move forward. So people tend not to want to be where they're uncomfortable. And I think we learned that we have a whole world, especially a country here, that didn't like the uncertainty of what uh, COVID brought us. Now, that's interesting that you brought that up, um, that, that during that kind of hanging in the uncertainty, you said, you know, gathering the information that you can. I'm assuming, and um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm assuming you mean don't just sit there and do nothing. What right. should business leaders be doing in those moments of uncertainty to make it feel like we're making a difference? <laughs> so I think that, you know, leadership is really about solving problems. And that's how I look at it. And if you act too quickly, you may be solving the wrong problem. So getting enough information to understand what it is that you're trying to do next is really important. Um, so you don't just sit there and do nothing. You gather as much information as you can during that period of, uh, of time in order to, you know, dictate or tell you what to do next. 
what do you think comes out of a status quo shift then? What what are we in your view and in your mind and and you wrote the book <laughs> what what comes on the other side of a shift a uh, seam time like this where the status quo changes so drastically? I, I think we can all point right to so many ways business is being done today that it wasn't back in let's say 2018 2019. What's the outcome here? So I think that um, there's a couple of them. Uh, and the ones that come to mind is, for example, the healthcare industry was very reticent to adopt telemedicine. And during the pandemic, they were kind of forced to do that. So I think that that forever will change that landscape. And while I do believe that, that healthcare practitioners should see people, there's also people who don't have access to that in-person care. People who have severe Parkinson's, for example, or some other condition that really precludes their getting to someplace on a very regular basis. Having a telemedicine be standard is a really important thing. Mm -hmm. I also believe, as I think that physicians and healthcare practitioners should see people, that people should be you know, in a workspace where they can collaborate. Zoom does not do that same level of collaboration. And I think that there's something that's missing there, especially for the young people. Part of being a young person in a, in a, a work position is to learn from their peers mm -hmm. or people who they will become peers with. And that's not happening in the same way that it once did prior to this time. So I think there are good things and I think that there are, there are bad things. I think, for example, that the NCAA extending uh, the life of a college athlete is great, and yet the people behind them have no place to, to go in. So there are, there are things that are good and things that are not good, and um, I think we're still navigating what that new normal is. I appreciate that perspective, Dr. Joan, that, that just shifting the status quo is not good in and of itself. Right. Um, it's kind of what I took from that answer. And, and to that point, um, I don't want to say I want to challenge you on something, but I want to get maybe perhaps some clarification on something you mm -hmm. wrote in the book. Um, you wrote that in business and in life, logic matters a great deal. Mm -hmm. I highlighted that when I was reading through the book because I had this question, um, who's logic? Well, I think that, you know, looking at logic as a discipline, not so much in terms of the vernacular. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm looking at, you know, inductive thinking and deductive thinking. And, and medicine, for example, is, uh, or allopathic medicine, classic medicine that we have in this country, is an inductive model. It takes small pieces of information, it then puts them together as symptoms of a disease, and then it treats that disease. Uh, it does not necessarily look at what would be, you know, considered normal or typical, and then the deviation from it, which is a top-down model or deductive model. So I think that um, as we look at that or we think about it, you have to think of it both ways. You can't just think about it as little symptoms and what does that look like. If you're going to treat people, you have to look at what they're missing, what, what, what's gone or what's not there or what's changed about their condition. So it matters in that respect. Not, I don't think people can determine what is logical from, for me and for you uh, because I think we use logical as a, as a path 
or a way to to way to behave or to move. But I don't think of it that way. I think about it as sort of inductive and deductive uh, logic and, and figuring out, you know, where to apply them. I appreciate that clarification so much. And, and, you know, if we could go uh, perhaps a little bit deeper there, uh-huh. you're a business leader, you're an entrepreneur. Um, the, the difference between inductive and deductive, can you provide perhaps a, a, another example outside of the med- medical world where perhaps to a CEO or a, a C-level executive running a business, what an example of an inductive and deductive logic process might look like? Yeah. So I think that uh, probably one, no one's ever asked me that. It's a great question. I think of deductive as being culture, the way that things uh, are or the way people behave as a culture. Uh, if you look at all the uh, problems if a culture goes bad, for example, and you say, okay, that there's discrimination or that there's not inclusion or whatever the culture is, you can, you can identify them by the small inductive pieces, but that's not going to get you the change you need. Then you have to look at the overall culture um, and then decide sort of where that goes wrong in terms of if people are feeling left out or something like that. So you need to look at the bigger picture and at the little picture. You can't ignore the little picture and say, well, I'm doing everything I can to make this a good environment for everyone without looking at the pieces that don't exist. But just looking at those doesn't make a good culture. Interesting. And, and you know, this, this show, the Fabric Podcast, you know, um, we're all about how company culture grows and scales as things change, as, as companies grow and scale. And, you know, Fabric stands for fun, authentic, bold, respectful, innovative, and collaborative. And just a precursor, I'm going to ask you which one of those is your favorite here in a little bit, but I still got other questions and topics to talk to you about. It struck me at the beginning of the book, Dr. Joan, as you were talking through this and leading up to that point you just made about the need for both inductive and deductive logic processes, I'll call them, um, how much at the beginning you focused on the the individual internal, the self-belief? I, I wrote down several examples here. You know, you said, for me, these internal obstacles ranged from a lack of self-belief uh, you can change the world if you are willing to first change yourself. That's a very individualistic uh, look at it. A willingness for self-change, a willingness to bend in the wake of upheaval and around you. You kind of uh, marked that as a necessary or required element of a leader during these status quo shifts. How does one get to that view of, of introspection? Of, of changing self-belief, of even believing that that change is needed from the individual rather than everyone else in the company. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think the word that comes to my mind as you were speaking is curiosity. Mm. If you have a curiosity about what you're doing and what's going on out in the world, you have to have a curiosity about yourself and what's going on in your, your inner world and its relationship to the outer world. And I always think of sort of my age when I, when I listen to young people talk and I thought, oh, wow, that sounds outrageous. I'm like, wait a minute, is it really outrageous or is it a different way of looking at something? Mm. And I'm constantly, constantly curious about where does that sit? And there are things that are really outrageous that are going to take a long time to change. And then there are things that are, may seem outrageous, but they're not. 
And so I'm always constantly curious about what's that relationship to me inside and whether that's my bias or whether it's actually a guardrail that we should watch. There's a big, big, or very a slight difference sometimes between where's the guardrail and where's the innovation. Hmm. And so if you don't have curiosity about that, then you'll dismiss things or you'll accept things without really any kind of introspection. Dr. Joan, what's been true for you in your life, in your career, that curiosity is a muscle that you flex, or to put it that way, that, that uh, it's something that you lean into rather than just assume you have all the answers? What's been true for you? So I think if I go way back, um, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. That's something I wanted to do when I was a kid, like a little kid. Like, you know, I think I said in the book, the best gift I ever got was a stethoscope, a cardiology yeah. stethoscope when I was 10, my yeah. birthday. But it meant that I didn't know what the rest of the world was doing. You know, I knew what I wanted to do and I knew what that world was like, but I didn't know what the rest of the world was doing. So I used to read the Times Want ads, which is where people found jobs in, in you know, way back when. So <laughs> on Sunday, I would open it up and I would see, you know, insurance or real estate. And I would look at the job titles and I would think, huh, I wonder what that is. And I asked my parents, what, what do you think? What does that job entail? Because they were both in that world, you know, corporate world. And I was curious about what the rest of the world was doing. My Peers in college who were getting out, what were they going to do? What was the route for becoming a CPA? What was the banking world like? What was anything else like? So that curiosity was there from, the, from a very early time. And as I went into uh, forming this company, I knew there was a lot of things I did not know. And I also knew that what I would do is find people who did know. And sometimes it was more than one person who knew, and they did it differently. I sought out the people who had more experience than I did, who understood things uh, from the more typical way of the way things being done. And then I questioned them. Well, why does it have to be done that way? Well, it's always been done that way. That was never a good answer for me. Is there a reason why it's always been done that way? And more than not, the answer was, no, that's just always been done that way. <laughs> Is there a reason why we can't do it this way? And the lawyer would say, no. You could do it that way. It's just never been done that way. So that's how we did it. Kind of sounds like just uh, tapping into that childlike wonder and curiosity, right? Even as an adult, that's still important for us to do. Am I, am I do going down the right path there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you have to look at everything in that same, that same light and realize whether it's you're not doing it because you're jaded because of some experience you had or whether it's a bias that's built in that you don't even know about. And constantly questioning what is going on around an opinion that I have. The the curiosity, the the striving to ask questions, to you know, during a shift in the status quo, and and during a seam time, there is the fear. I get the sense, and I, I I you know, having been a leader myself for for you know, going on a little over a decade now, I get the sense in the that there is a fear of making mistakes. And the chapter title of chapter 10 in your book, you make a very important distinction here that I'd love to get your, get your insight into why. Chapter 10 is, is titled, Own Your Mistakes and Don't Let Them Become Failures. I think we hear all the time in the business world, um, you know, learn from your failures. 
Why was it such a distinction that you needed to make from your mistakes and your failures? If you are making a mistake, you're not off the journey. If you have a failure, that tends to feed into a narrative that your journey has ended or has changed or is different. And I just look at those kinds of mistakes or, you know, failures of, of, a, of a particular path maybe as just part of the journey. Hmm. It's not a linear entrepreneurship and business and those things are not linear, right? And so you're going to meet up with, with dead ends, things that you come up against a rock and you're like, oh, now what am I going to do? And you have to back, back up and go around that rock. And if you look at that as a failure, you're not going to go around the rock. You're going to get you know, discouraged or upset with yourself. And it's going to take up a lot of time and energy to, to process that. And while I think you need to be very clear about, okay, that didn't work. I went down that path. It didn't work. Now what am I going to do? You have to spend the energy figuring out what the next step is and wasting time on castigating yourself or others around you will not, will not work well. And so that's how I make a distinction. It's an important distinction. Can you give us an example of a mistake that you made that perhaps looked or felt like a failure that actually turned out to be one of those, one of those bumps along the road? So I think that that in my world, time is really important. And, and very often I relied on our outside people, you know, who say to, to me, well, we're going to have this done by, you know, January. And, you know, the end of December comes and I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not so sure it's going to be done by January. Maybe end of February. And not being more proactive in that, in that realm I think was something I would do today hmm. if I were in the same place. It would be more proactive around managing others where I don't have the control. Because uh, you need, you know, when you're small and you're starting out, you need partners to help you do things. And holding them accountable um, was something I learned, you know, partway through this journey because I thought, well, they know better. They've been doing this for a long time. This is not new to them. They're going to honor what they say to me. And maybe not so much. And so I would do things differently. I would take more ownership of every part of things and not rely so heavily on outside people to, to uh, perform a task for us. Ooh, there's a story there that I, I don't know that we have time to explore today, but <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe folks can... Yeah, maybe folks can connect with you and learn more sure. about that. Uh, speaking of that, how can people get a copy of the book, A Goodbye Status Quo? And, and where can people connect with you, Dr. Joan? So uh, so the book, of course, is in bookstores and in uh, Amazon, for sure. And I'm on LinkedIn. I am um, uh, on Twitter, uh, at Curemark, uh, CEO. And uh, so those are, the I think, the best ways to, to find me. Fantastic. Well, Great. final question, as promised, I mentioned earlier that this is the Fabric podcast and, and uh, Fabric spells out our core values of fun, authentic, bold, respectful, innovative, and collaborative. And I would just love to hear from you, which one of those resonates the most with you, Dr. Joan? They're all really important, every one of them. But I think the boldness is what, um, uh, to me, resonates the most. Because when you're bold... 
you know, it encompasses a lot of the other things. You can have innovation, collaboration, you can have, you know, fun, all those things. But if you're not bold, then those things don't come to the, to the top. Uh, but I love that uh, because all of those things are, are equally important in what you do. Uh, but I think bold is what resonates the most with me. Beautifully said. And I've, I've never heard it put that way, that under bold, you can have all of the other values. So I appreciate that perspective there, Dr. Joan. Thank you so much for uh, coming on and, and sharing your, your thoughts about your book. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. It was an honor. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Fabric Podcast. Our show is hosted by me, Michael Ashford, Director of Marketing here at The Receptionist and produced by our creative manager, James Jordan. If you want to see a video version of the show, jump over to thereceptionist.com slash fabric, where you can watch episodes of all of the content that we've put out on this podcast. You can see our bright smiling faces and you can see what our studio looks like as well. If you'd like to give the receptionist for iPad visitor management system a try in your office, jump over to thereceptionist.com slash free trial and give us a test drive for 14 days with no credit card required. See what you think. Until next time, take care.